Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the conversation today with Kali Von Bali. And I must say, I'm, I'm new to the Kali Von Bali fan club, but uh, a raving fan and delighted to have you on the call today, especially de delighted to have you as a member of the Iowa Writers Collaborative now. Um, I see we have at least one member of the collaborative on the call so far, and that's Barry Pyatt, who writes from Washington, D.C. And uh, everybody else so far, regular, somewhat regular uh, readers and uh, participants in these calls, which are fascinating. Uh, and if you ever have a suggestion for somebody to have on the call, just let me know. But I'd love to talk to you about the column first. And then we'll get into your background as a writer. Love to have you talk about the Okoboji Writers Retreat, of course, yeah. um, and the and the teaching you do. But let's let's start with this horrible tragedy that took place in your neighborhood that changed your life. Yeah. So um, this was back in early April, two thousand seventeen. It was uh, it was the Thursday evening, April sixth, two thousand seventeen. Um, we live outside Bondurant out in the country and on our road, every, all the houses are on acreages and the night of April 6th, um, the, my longtime neighbors who lived, lived directly across the street from me, um, it was my husband, uh, his wife and their 24 year old daughter. They were, um, tragically murdered by their then 20 year old, um, seriously mentally ill son um, who was in the grips of psychosis that night. He was undiagnosed schizophrenic at the time. Um, he was under medicated and they had not been able to get uh, inpatient hospitalization. Um, and he had a very severe psychotic episode um, and murdered his family after that happened. And because of the proximity of our house, we were sort of caught up in the middle of of this incident um, before Chase, the young, that's the young man's name, turned himself into police and eventually pled guilty and is now serving three consecutive life sentences uh, at the um, at the mental health prison in Coralville. And as I said, I had known this family for over 15 years. Um, the Chase's older sister, Tawny, she had babysat my kids for many years when they were little. So she spent a lot of time at our house with our family. We loved her. And I knew Chase as a child. He rode the bus with my kids. Um, occasionally, Tawny would bring him over to play at the house um, when she babysat. Um, so it was, it was not only shocking when the murders happened, but I, I also was struck by how, um, as reports came out from extended family members, uh, about Chase's long history of mental illness, I was really struck by how little we had known about the family's private struggle with their son. Um, he had been in and out of, like uh, he'd been at um, uh, uh, Orchard Place here in Des Moines, which is a behavioral health center for teens. He had been pulled out of public school and went to a, a private Christian school and had, we just we had no idea that they had really struggled so much behind the scenes and it was after i think it was his aunt it was his aunt or his, or his cousin gave an interview a few days after the murders and said that chase had had multiple suicide attempts that his 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 mother in particular had spent years trying to get him proper help and in fact, he'd had a very serious suicide attempt, I think five days before the murders happened. His mother took him to the ER and Chase in the ER told doctors that he was sick. He knew he was sick and he needed hospitalized. But at that time, there wasn't a single psychiatric bed available in the entire state of Iowa. And so his family, his mother had to take him back home after they released him after 12 hours. And four days later, he killed his whole family. And I just, I, I, I think that was the big turning point for me that it was, uh, I, I was not aware of how much families in Iowa were struggling privately. Um, kind of, I, I 
started educating myself on the the state of mental health care in Iowa and and um, sort of the the discrepancies and and where it was failing families, where it was failing patients, um, and really got involved. I started writing first for the Des Moines Register. I wrote several uh, kind of articles and then profiles, and then I got involved with um, NAMI Iowa, just mostly, um, you know, during their legislative season, trying to help where I could um, push through some new mental health legislation. Um, all really just in honor of this family um, who gave their lives, literally gave their lives for our failed mental health system. And eventually I reached out to Chase himself. Um, I wrote him a letter after he's, he'd been in prison, I think maybe a year. Um, and just a short note that said, um, you know, I remember you as a child. I don't know if you remember me, you played with my kids. I'm a writer. And if you're interested in having a pen pal, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, exchange letters. I really felt like his mother I knew his mother and I knew how much she loved him and how hard she had worked to try and get him help. And I was just convinced that she would want someone in the world to reach out and care. And he wrote back and we became pen pals for a while. Eventually, as we got to know each other a little more, um, we exchanged emails and eventually phone calls. And I do now go visit him in the prison every couple months. Um, we've developed a very close friendship uh, and support system. Yeah. Kelly, when you walk into the prison to see him, what do you feel? You know, the first time I went to visit him, at that time, he had been moved to Anamosa, the big um, oh, yeah. maximum security prison. I had never been inside a prison or a jail ever in my entire life. It was very unnerving uh, the first time, you know, going through security and, you know, you pass through those metal bars that open and close behind you. And then going into the visitation room and sitting across, you know, embracing and then sitting across from a, a triple murder. Um, it, it was unnerving at first, but, you know, as I've gotten to know Chase, he's, he's for the most part, he's stable now because he's getting proper medication and medical intervention that he didn't get when he was living on the outside. Medicated and properly uh, uh, taken care of, he's honestly a, a, a just a nice young man. He's incredibly bright, um, curious about the world, always very respectful very appreciative to have a friend and, and a support system. And now when I go visit him, it's, um, you know, I'm very used to it. I'm very used to it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when I, I don't, I don't know your political views. We're just getting to know each other, but I'm always appalled when there's an incident of murder or violence or whatever, mass shootings, and and invariably somebody identifies it as a mental health problem, not a gun problem. Um, and yet those same people don't do anything to address the mental health problem. That's my perspective. What have you learned? I, I have the same perspective. I identify um, I'm as more liberal, Democrat, progressive, um, but especially for mental health care. My biggest frustration is that it, it is often on social media. This is what we see. Um, we need better mental health care. We need better mental health care. Well, now that I've been, you know, working in the mental health care field and legislation, I see it's, it's really just kind of, a, it's the thing to say, right? We need better mental health care. Well, then when advocates and, 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 people in the community try and make change, there's so much pushback and resistance to not only get the legislation, but to then get it funded, right? Um, so I do get very frustrated uh, by that sort of battle cry that it's, we need better, better mental health care. Well, 
those of us are, who are working behind the scenes, we're trying and we're just meeting so much resistance every every step of the way. So back to your individual story and your awakening as a result, this young man came to a hospital, said he was in need of help. And of course, <laughs> the questions they ask are, is this person a, a <laughs> himself and others? Obviously he was. Mm -hmm. um, what, who should be accountable for that, Kelly, in your view? That is a hard question to answer. At that time, in 2017, we were just on the heels of then Governor Branstead closing two of the four state hospitals, which is part of this effort, this push towards deinstitutionalization and a move towards more, more community-based mental health care treatment. The problem that happened though, that is really surprising that no one kind of predicted would become a problem was once they closed two state hospitals, all those uh, inpatient long-term psychiatric beds went away and they were never replaced. So when patients like Chase, who were having very serious acute mental health care crises that um, for serious mental illnesses, complex mental illnesses like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, that people who need long-term hospitalization to, to um, start to stabilize, right. those beds were gone, half those beds were gone. And at the time of the, the Nicholson family murders, um, when Governor then Governor Branstead was asked about um, you know, the state of mental health care in Iowa, at that time, Iowa ranked dead last in the nation for available psychiatric beds per resident. I think it was something like two beds per 100,000 people. Um, he was, he had a very curt response and refused to even answer. And I, I felt like that's kind of where we're at in Iowa still six years later. It's, um, everybody knows it's a problem, but doesn't really seem to want to do the heavy lifting or really put in what needs to happen to fix it. In your experience, are there any champions on both sides of the aisle in the legislature that just can't get traction? Or is it a, it is, is it such a complicated issue that nobody's really taking it on? I, I, I did. I, I, there were several who I worked with. One in particular comes to mind. Back in 2017, 18, my state representative at that time was Zach Nunn. He mm. was a wandering at resident. I, I actually met him at the Nicholson family vigil that was held like two days after the murders. He was there. So I knew I knew he was aware of the story um, and was like trying to show support by being there. So when I lobbied um, for some of that mental health care new legislation the following year, he met with me. We talked for a long time. Um, he showed up for the vote. He voted for it. Later, he became the state senator for my district. Um, I again met with him, lobbied. He gave me names of other Republican senators he thought um, in his party would be interested in willing. So there, there were some um, that I felt were well aware of the deficits in our mental health care system. But I also met with some who could have cared less. I, I the the representative who replaced Zach Nunn in my district the following year, um, when I went to meet with him and to talk about the big mental health care bill that was being legislation that was being discussed that year during the legislative session. He didn't, he wasn't even aware of what it was. He'd never even heard of it. Hmm. So that was kind of frustrating. It felt like a step backward in our district, I guess. Of course, one of the um one of the one of the tricks a lot of politicians do is that when they're meeting individually with a constituent, the constituent leaves thinking they've been heard, that they're, you know, the the representative or senator is is gonna care about what they had to say and vote right. 
Were there any votes on the record that indicated that Zach Nunn was walking the talk? There was. He voted. Okay, good. Good. The representative that um, took his seat after that, though, I met with him, um, had a long discussion. He's also a Vondurant resident. We talked a long time about the Nicholson case. Um, and then he didn't he didn't show up to vote that year. So he didn't even he wasn't even a part of the legislative vote that year. Mm. Did you ever think about running against him? No, <laughs> quite honestly, <laughs> I would be terrible. My mouth would get me in too much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you're you've started this column just what not even a week ago, right? Yes. Yes. And you and I had some wonderful conversations back and forth about how, what focus you would take because you you could do all kinds of different kinds of Substack columns. In fact, I see you just started one on writing techniques, which yeah, I'm more than writing. Yes, mm -hmm. that'll, that'll be great. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. Now, certainly promote it in the Okaboji Writers Retreat group. But we we talked about whether you'd take the true crime angle, which you have quite an experience or the mental health angle. And personally, I'm delighted you took the mental health angle. Yeah. I've also shared with you, you know, some of my own personal experiences with mental health issues. Um, my own, which, and I've, I've written about my own. Uh, I've been hospitalized three times now for bipolar disorder. Um, but there are others, examples close to me in my family that I won't write about because it's not my story to tell. Right. But I will tell you that I have been very up close and personal with the deficiencies of the mental health system and uh, can can count multiple times that were it had had this person been treated appropriately, it would have cost taxpayers a whole lot of money or saved taxpayers a whole lot of money in unnecessary hospitalization. Right. Uh, and I, I just, I, the, the level of frustration I feel, I can't imagine there are other people on this call who've also had instances where not getting help has been so much more costly to taxpayers. Yes. And here in the state of Iowa, like in the case of Chase, now the state is paying for a life prison sentence. Um, we're also seeing like a huge uptick in homelessness, especially here in Des Moines. For um, you, for individuals dealing with a serious mental illness, um, you know it affects even when even if someone doesn't know someone personally, like very personally affected by a serious mental illness. I challenge that if you just look at a little bit further, you would be surprised how you actually are. Everyone it touches everyone in some indirect direct way. You know, it's interesting. I'm pretty open about about my experiences, and um, and it 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 always leads to somebody saying their own experience or or the family member's experience. Mm -hmm. uh, still, still quite a bit of stigma, but I, I do believe that by talking about it, it, it makes a difference. I'd like to open this up to folks on the call, and if you have a comment or a question or uh, your own experience you'd like to share with the mental health system. It might be interesting. You say you have some columns in the queue. Mm -hmm. uh, it, do you mind sharing what topics those are while I wait to see who's going to raise their hand? Yes. So um, through NAMI, I've met several um, wonderful uh, mental health advocates across the state. One of my favorite people is a woman named Leslie Carpenter. She lives she and her husband, Scott, they live in the Iowa City area. They have a son with a very, an adult son with a very serious mental illness. And they have become major leaders in our state um, for, for trying to improve mental health care. Um, and she, we're, we were very friendly. I, I follow her closely on social media. And she, she posted last week, um, a day or two after the Lewiston, Maine mass shooting um, and the discovery of the shooter's body um, after the manhunt ended. And then this, this, the brief mentions that this, this individual had had, clearly had some mental health um, issues he had been dealing with and then was hospitalized for just a couple weeks and then released. 
And Leslie had a beautiful post on social media about her complex feelings during these big news stories about mass shootings and, and the families behind them when it involves someone who has been very sick and they've been trying to get them help. Um, it was so beautiful, beautiful and eloquently put that um, she gave me permission to use her social media post in my next column. It's just so important, I think, um, coming from her perspective. So that's just an example of one, yeah, okay. that I'm coming up. Great. Well, we've got some questions or comments. Barry, you're first. And by the way, I've muted everybody because we were getting quite a bit of background noise. So you will need to unmute when it's your turn. Go ahead, Barry. Hey, uh, thank you. Uh, I have two questions. The first of which is, does the young man that you visited in prison have any recollection of what he did? Or is it like he woke up from a nightmare and he's in prison for the rest of his life? Um, and then the second question is, what I hesitate to call it reasons. Uh, what excuses do the people who uh, are policymakers who refuse to do anything about the shortcomings, what what excuses do they give you for that? Or do they even bother to do that? Yes. So um, Chase does remember, unfortunately, what happened. Um, I, I would describe it now as it's almost like he has PTSD from it, even though he was the one who committed the crimes, it's like the memory of them um, gives him almost PTSD. Um, he has to take medication to sleep at night um, because he has such traumatic nightmares from it. And it's almost like he, it's like a memory of watching someone else do it um, is how I would best describe it. Um, I have to be very, very careful. Uh, in how we, we ever discuss it, um, because it is such a difficult, uh, sensitive topic, obviously, um, for him to revisit. And I sort of just let him leave when he's able uh, or needs to mention it. Um, that's how I would best describe it, though. And as for legislators, lawmakers, who I have met with who then um, didn't vote for certain legislation or funding, it just often comes down to um, either they listen, sort of humor me. It feels like they're humoring you a little bit. Um, they just pacify the, the activists who are trying to share personal stories or whatever. Um, or the other uh, sort of response I get is funding. It's money, money, money. It just costs money. Denise, you're up next. You'll need to unmute. And then Josiah. Um, I've lost a family member to suicide. And when we were trying to get help for him over a period of, oh, maybe five, seven years, it in Iowa, it was like a web of going here and there and everybody passing the buck. And we just could not get good care. He went to um, Kansas for a while. Uh, but um, anyway, that was awful. But I've got involved with NAMI, both the Greater Des Moines, which is now called something else, mm -hmm. and, and NAMI of Iowa, and had several of their celebrity dinners in our home where they bring in a well-known like Doris Day or Clara, you know, those um, famous people that have had a mental illness who you would never know, um, right. but they do. And that's surprising. But anyway, around these dinners of maybe 22 people, 25 people, as we'd go around, practically everybody has had an experience. And like you said, people don't want to talk about it until you're in a safe group where you can. Um, and so anyway, I guess I don't really have a question, except what can we do? I've been trying over the years, and I talked to legislators, but it just seems, and Kim Reynolds actually attended these dinners in a video one year, not in person, and she said she was going to do what she could do, you know, and Des Moines University had a panel, and everything seems 
in place to make a change, but nothing happens. So I don't know. It's been frustrating. I, Denise, I so agree with you. There still is this sort of lingering stigma. While I think, I think this younger generation is getting much more um, versed in and open about talking about mental health struggles. Um, I think where we see the the gap is where it's it's very serious mental illness or like chronic um, clinical depression that people um, it's it, it is hard to talk about and families feel a little protective or private about it because I think sometimes there's still this this undercurrent tone that it's like a personal failing like maybe someone has they just aren't very strong or it's like a weakness or something instead of treating it like an illness it is the same as if someone got cancer which I've had cancer and it's very different like people bring you food and and send you flowers and like it's just this very beautiful public outpouring but when you have a, a really sick mentally ill loved one it's not the same it, it feels more like um they've done something wrong maybe or people are afraid of it yes yeah. it's like That's oh gosh yeah. they're afraid or, and they don't know what to say right yeah they don't know what to say it's yeah afraid of saying something quote unquote wrong That's the last kind of hurdle we are at this moment working through i think people are getting better about being public with it talking openly about it um and 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 just uh making it more of a of an open supportive discussion instead of like a a private secret or something yeah is it just that, that that they're not the lobbying arms with the muscle to get stuff done? Is it, it, it is that the problem? I mean, if everybody's affected by it, why isn't everybody working for it? I I think part of the the challenge right now is that I think there is some groundswell of support to change it, to put legislation in place. And some landmark legislation was passed, like the children's mental health care system got passed, I think it was two years ago, which was had taken decades to get passed here in Iowa. We had no children's mental health care system whatsoever. Then we started that, um, that other piece of mental health care legislation that put in the regional access points. Now the challenge is funding. Where does the funding come from? And I, I think the big challenge now is we're talking about decades of dismantling the old mental health care system, and it's probably going to take decades to rebuild it. Like the old system of, you know, what were called asylums and those really big, imposing, kind of gothic-looking mental hospitals um, that had terrible reputations for how they cared for patients and, you know, people going and staying for, you know, many, many years at a time and not getting good health, not getting appropriate humane treatment and care. So we spent decades dismantling that system. And now I, I just think it's going to take decades to rebuild it, unfortunately. And we are living in that interim as we speak. We sure are. Josiah, you're uh, muted, so you'll need to unmute. Yes, this is a very important topic. I, I, I've worked about three decades in the involuntary commitment process and the juvenile court process. So I've watched the system shift from these larger institutions like Clorinda to let's kick everybody to the community. And we have had extreme frustration. I've had extreme frustration with the, the commitment process because it's, it's just 99% of the time someone will go and be evaluated for two days, maybe three days, maybe a week, and then get kicked right back home. Mm -hmm. That is just how it works if you don't have money. 
And most of the people in the system don't have money. So we're talking about Medicaid money that isn't being allocated or grabbed by the state somehow, I think, so that we can fund <clears throat> doctors and nurses and hospital beds. Right. It's just incredible that we don't keep people long enough to at least figure out, hey, they have a dual diagnosis. We're going to need, you know, four months of care and and follow up with the medications at home. A lot of families simply don't have the sophistication to deal with doctors, particularly psychiatrists. They don't know about writing a letter and and insisting on seeing the patient while they're at their uh, commitment time, their very short commitment time. Uh, they simply are afraid of all the system or they're angry at the system because, uh, you know, maybe they've been committed a couple of times and nothing ever happens. Uh, there's extreme frustration down here in Southwest Iowa. It doesn't have to do with the closure of Clorinda. Mm -hmm. It's got to do with the fact that you send somebody to Council Bluffs to one of the two hospitals or maybe to Atlantic or maybe even closer to home occasionally. And they don't stay. They don't stay long enough to get the medications regulated. And that takes months. You, know, exactly. you can't do it in two days. People come back and they say, well, he, the doc gave me, you know, some some antipsychotic. Well, God, you don't even know it's going to work for three or four weeks. Right. So, so I don't know where the lobby is for mental health. It's down at the very bottom of the totem pole in every single state, not just Iowa. It's a mess. Right. And, and it, and it is not getting better. Yeah. And related to what you're talking about there, the interesting thing about my relationship with Chase is that since he's been in prison and we've developed this relationship of trust um, and support and advocacy, um, he has signed HIPAA forms, um, the, the patient privacy forms, giving me permission to sometimes email his psychiatrist there or his um, sort of corrections officers team. He has a counselor and a psychiatrist. Um, and in the controlled environment, um, in its prison, I, which isn't what we want, obviously, but in a controlled environment where he's um, being medicated and in a, at least he's not homeless on the streets, things like that, I have access to his psychiatrist. And with the community-based um, approach, I think it really ties families' hands when they're actually taking the responsibility and, and um, the, the huge responsibility of caring for their loved one who has a serious mental illness, but yet they can't talk often, talk to the doctors, the medical team. Sometimes they can't even get the diagnosis for what their loved one even has, what medications they're on. Um, that's the other big gap that from my perspective, because in helping advocate for Chase, I have all the information. So I know I can, I, I know who to contact. I know what important things to talk about if I'm seeing signs or anything like that, um, because I do have other uh, actual family members in my extended family with serious mental illness and without that HIPAA and, and legal access to talk to a medical team. They're really just sort of, um, their hands are tied. So if you could wave a magic wand, I, I give out magic wands regularly. <clears throat> if you could wave a magic wand and pass meaningful legislation through the Iowa House and Senate and have it signed by the governor, what would be in that, Kali? Well, I'm I'm not the I'm not the expert on all of this. Um, I'm still very much learning this very complex, vast landscape, but I do think um the 
non-med switching, which gets forced by insurance companies a lot for person when individuals are taking um, psychiatric medications and their insurance will no longer pay for one brand and then forces them to switch to another is incredibly disruptive yep. um, and has families have been fighting for this for several years now. Obviously getting the funding to pay for some of this legislation that's already passed and that's just kind of sitting idle without proper funding behind it. Um, I, I do think that some small adjustments to the HIPAA policies would help so many families be able to um, advocate more effectively for their loved one, take, you know, take their part in it. It would just make it a lot less, um, so many blockades in trying to help their loved one. Um, so I, at the beginning of this talk, I mentioned my dear friend, Leslie, she jumped on this call. I see she's on here right now listening in. I love um, she is about the biggest expert I have ever met um, on all things, particularly here in Iowa. Um, I sort of follow Leslie's lead um, for a lot of these issues. Um, so Leslie, if you would unmute, if you're willing to uh, hop on the call here and, and share your experience as well, we'd love to have you. I've often thought, Callie, in, in the in the whole debate over uh, forgiveness of student loans, what if we had, what if we paid for uh, psychiatric education for, for the, you know, trained doctors, trained mental health professionals, that sort of thing and would guarantee that that we'd pay for that that education. I've also wondered about the whole privatization of these kinds of things and what what role that plays in it. Uh, but not, you know, like you, I'm not I don't spend morning, noon and night studying all this. I just live with the ramifications. It really is almost a full-time job as I I've seen Leslie and her husband and other advocates across the state. It really has become full-time jobs for them. Welcome, Leslie. <laughs> Hi, Leslie. So if you had a magic wand, Leslie, <clears throat> what would you change? Let's just tackle Iowa for, for this particular call. Sure. I would add a codification um, that the treating providers determine length of stay in hospitals and all other settings and levels of care, not the insurance companies. Um, that's one big thing. I would add um, Iowa code to uh, force hospitals to be uh, providing responsible discharge planning um, and no longer just treating people after two days, as Josiah was just talking about. That's completely irresponsible. And that's being done in Michigan. They've codified it that they are no longer allowed to treat people, um, especially if there's an outpatient order and team already in place. Um, I would add more beds at our state hospitals. I mean, we are 51st in the country, and I'm sure you've already talked about that. Um, we desperately need more beds for long-term care. Um, we are adding ERSH beds, the intensive residential service homes, and those are helping, but they are not perfect, nor do we have all that are meant to already be developed yet in the state. Um, <laughs> It, there are so many things. I completely agree with you, Julie, about adding the funding for expansion of the professional services and, you know, getting more psychiatrists, more nurses, more social workers, more therapists, more psychologists. Um, a big missing piece, even when somebody does stay in a hospital for an extended period of time, a big missing piece is that they often don't get time with a psychologist to understand and learn about their illnesses, even if they begin to gain the insight to know that they have the insight. Um, to know that they have the illness. So there's a lot of solutions. And, you know, I will say that we've made a lot of progress. Um, the legislature has been pretty supportive, um, but I think that they definitely are open to more input. Um, and if we can center it around building out the workforce, they'll get behind it um, because they see that as the biggest problem is that even if we did allow for more, beds, we can't staff them. So staffing them is a huge priority. 
And of course, always, always, always constant increasing of those Medicaid reimbursement rates because people in this field are drastically underpaid. The organizations are underpaid and, and they are floundering financially. We need to have them be allowed to be robust facilities and agencies to provide more services. And the way to do that is to pay them better for the care that they're providing. Do you have any idea what a typical caregiver is paid in Iowa versus, uh, let's say, Minnesota or Illinois? Is yeah, that- it's it's far less. We are right near the bottom of the country in terms of what our mental health providers are being um, paid compared to Minnesota, uh, Illinois, every other state. So it's also a federal reimbursement rate adjustment as well as, as the state level. Leslie, how did this happen? How, in, in Iowa, I mean, how did this happen? Well, um, in terms of the closure of the state hospitals, we were um, that happened after 2005 when they stopped taking away a waiver to get around the IMD exclusion. And so they went on this big propaganda campaign to say that the state hospitals were awful places. Um, and then they closed them down. And that was a huge impact all the way back, all the way to acute care when somebody's first presenting to the hospital. Because if you can't get somebody somewhere for long-term care, then you don't have any place for somebody for acute care. It really does. Um, And I just wanna state here that the state hospitals are not terrible places. My son just spent two years in one finally, and he received the best, most comprehensive medically necessary treatment that he needed far sooner. It was very, very helpful for him. So I just want people to know that that is uh, a fallacy that state hospitals are bad places. For those who need it, we desperately need to have that available. Okay, Josiah, and again, you're uh, muted, so you'll need to unmute. Thank you, Leslie. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to ask you to hop on again here, but go ahead, Josiah. Leslie, who are the lobbyists for mental health? Who who speaks for NAMI? I, I I don't know. In the, in the state legislature. Yeah, so NAMI Iowa does have uh, lobbyists with, um, I think it's Policy Works. So it is Lon um, Anderson and uh, Michael Cacciatore. Um, and I separately, you know, I'm a volunteer, but I also am a lobbyist for Iowa Mental Health Advocacy. I don't get paid by anybody. Um, and I'm specifically advocating for those with the most serious mental illnesses. So people with schizophrenia, schizoaffective and bipolar disorders. Um, those are the main lobbyists um, for people with mental illness. There are a few other independent groups, um, but those are the main ones. I will tell you that we get a huge amount of support by collaborating with a lot of the other lobbying groups um, that are there. You know, there's people representing psychiatrists, there's people representing the hospital associations. And so whenever we can, we try to work with them um, for some of these bills. Like um, Callie mentioned the continuity of medications. Um, Definitely there's a huge group that's working on that year after year to try to get that passed. And there's hope that this might be the year we get it passed. So we'll see. But it, you know, we could use more voices there. So if any of you are associated with any other groups that are spending time at the Capitol, please encourage them to be putting uh, mental illness treatment improvement at the top of their legislative priorities because it helps to have more voices there. I was, I, I was, I was kind of, uh, I was appalled in the last legislative cycle, how many races ended up uncontested. Now, I know there's this sort of belief in terms of political pundits that one should allocate resources where one can win. On the other hand, it seems unconscionable that so many of these races go uncontested. Um, is there is there an effort to get people to run for office? I mean, people who have personal stories like this whether they win or lose, they can make a difference articulating why they're why they're running. I don't know if there's an effort for that. There should be. Um, <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I, I think it would be fantastic. Um, I do know it's a pretty nonpartisan issue. Everybody right. could be speaking to this and feeling pretty safe to about speaking about it, right? Um, so it should be one of the leading issues that gets talked about um, because it's affecting so many people in our state. 
Um, And so, yeah, it's a really good question. I do wish we had more candidates um, everywhere speaking about it. And the more that we can get people there asking about it, that helps to bring it forward into the conversation. And and it it affects every jailer, every sheriff, every cop in the state, you know, because they are dealing with this stuff daily. Yes, and to that point, the Sheriff's Association has been one of the biggest allies for me in trying to get more state beds. For the NAMI, often their like conference or NAMI Day on the Hill, they have, I think every year that I've ever been there, they brought in a law enforcement officer who represents maybe a a county sheriff's office or a police department, and they're begging for help. They're begging for improvement in the overall system because a lot of the burden has fallen on them. And that's not really at, at the core what law enforcement is designed to deal with or do. So Chuck Offenberger has a comment and then uh, Bridget ha- has a, a, a que- uh, I'm gonna call on her in a minute, but um, he asks if this is such a big story, not if that's not his word, why there should be dedicated reporters covering this morning, noon and night I was so glad you chose to step up and write a column about it. Believe me, I just cried when you picked that topic. Um, But why don't we see more coverage of this? It affects everybody. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's fear of being, like it's not, the thing with mental health and mental illness is it's not a, it's an uncomfortable illness, right? It's uncomfortable for people who love, who have a loved one with the illness. It's not, um, it's not, uh, there's there's just um, unpleasantness associated with it sometimes in behaviors and sort of taking care of someone with a mental illness. And I think it, it then in turn makes it hard to speak up and advocate for it. It's not a very, you know, it's not a flashier, sexy type of cause to get behind, right? Because there's all these other stigmas associated with it. Loved ones, families, advocates have to break through. Yeah. Kelly, you've been granted a lot of uh, permission and trust from Chase. You're a writer. Are you at some point going to write Chase's story? I, I, in fact, I just visited him yesterday and we had a discussion about this because I did tell him first before I started writing the column that I had planned to mention him and our, it was really the first time in the column too that I had gone kind of public with my relationship with him, my support and advocacy with him. Um, and I told him that, uh, you know, in writing about him, I was not ashamed to have this close relationship with him. I was proud of how far he's come and how hard he has to work to manage his illness in prison um, beyond just the medication he gets. Um, and he absolutely gave me permission to discuss, to write about him. Um, and 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 he gave me that permission knowing I would not abuse it um, in any way and also also trying to be respectful of the loss of his family because there are extended family members who have who are still dealing with that incredible loss of Mark Charlotte. Um, it's it's a fine line that I'm trying to balance um, in my support of Chase um, with while also respecting you know the lost loved ones. But yes, he does. Um, I think feel like maybe telling his story through me or, or um, in writing about him, it does help him feel like maybe his life is not a complete loss. And I think that's what he struggles with most is that his lo- his life feels to him like a complete loss and waste. And what what is the purpose of him even, he says this to me often, what is the purpose of me even breathing on earth anymore? Um, after what I did, and I'll never get out of prison. And so I I do hope that um, in writing about it, me writing the story in, in pieces and sharing helps give 
his life and the tragedy that happened with his family some purpose. Well, good for you. Bridget, you'll need to <clears throat> unmute, excuse me. Thank you very much for this really important discussion. Um, I'm in Albuquerque where we've got some kind of um, advocacy coming through the police department, something like a mental health worker. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Is that effective? Do we know? Um, I'm not sure how to answer this question. Leslie, do you have thoughts on this one? Yes, um, I do. Thank you. Um, I strongly encourage them to have mental health, um, people responding to people in a mental health crisis. Um, it makes a huge difference in terms of keeping people um, from being criminalized and also to keep them from being shot um, during a response with the police. Um, and it, it sounds brutal to say it so openly, but, you know, people with a mental illness are 15 times more likely to be shot if somebody calls 911 for them. Um, and that brings up the point that you want to be sure you know about 988. Um, and I think you probably already talked about that. Um, but 988 is the way to go because that way we're connecting people to mental health professional response rather than a police response, at least initially. And most of those calls are, are uh, handled on a phone call um, when they do need to. And if there's one available, they'll send out mobile crisis. And then if they don't have that available, then they'll send out police, hopefully somebody who's been crisis intervention team trained, and maybe hopefully with somebody who has a mental health co-responder. Um, I strongly uh, support the idea of having many more mental health professionals be able to do that emergency response rather than law enforcement. Um, so yeah. excellent question. We want that model. And um, to add to Leslie's comment about 988, here's another interesting connection. My older sister, who is finishing um, her counseling degree to be a licensed therapist, um, worked for 988. She worked the crisis hotline for over a year last year. Um, she worked the night shift answering in the chat, which is what most of the younger generation prefers is to send a chat, like a text. Um, and it was a it was a really grueling, um, like nonstop answering chats all night, like suicidal persons trying to get an ambulance or police to an address um, for someone who had attempted suicide, things like that. And she did not, she was not getting rich doing that job. Let me tell you, it was, um, it was pretty, pretty low wages and pretty high burnout rate. Doc, you had a question. I, I just heard uh, maybe it was Leslie or, or you, Callie. I can't remember which. We Iowa rank. I want to be clear on this. Iowa ranks fifty-first in what? What's the correct term? In the number of state beds that we have for adults and children, we only have sixty-four for adults and thirty-two for children, of which only twenty-eight are staffed per the last report that came out in November last year. In the whole state? The whole state. In terms of the state beds, that's right. It's that's shameful. Unbelievable. It's less than two per 100,000 people, and it should be 50. It should be much more higher, just so you know. And the waiting list, so someone needs um, a long-term psychiatric bed. If they're in the hospital, acutely sick, um, threatening suicide, violence, hearing voices. I'm, and I'm speaking all of this. This was Chase's case. Telling medical staff, I'm very sick. I need hospitalized. There's no, if there's no bed available in the state, that number, um, Leslie just said, they send them home. 12, after 12 hours, Chase went home in acute psychosis. A, a paranoid schizophrenic psychosis and that's when four days later that happened with his family. So Leslie and Callie, it it seems it seems somebody or the state or somebody needs to be held accountable for this financially if there's going to be a change. I mean, yes, Chase is serving time for murder, but who's really accountable here? 
And how do we how do we hold the system accountable? Is there is there any talk of any cl- kind of class action suit or I don't I don't know I don't In know Chase's case no um, he he has no family left it's I mean that's where he's at other than me um, I think he has one aunt maybe who sends him a little bit of money but beyond that um, no I I have often thought that uh, in Chase's case. He, um, at the time, was only diagnosed with bipolar disorder and I think then ADHD. And his psychiatrist at the time had put him on Adderall, um, which is now understood to be a stimulant and can induce psychosis in schizophrenic patients. And Kate has talked at length with me about the effects of him having to take Adderall and then it inducing psychosis in him. Um, so I have, and I asked him, well, how often did you see your psychiatrist at the time when you were on the outside? And he said, I think I had an appointment once every three months. That's it. For approximately five minutes max. Right. So I often wondered, I, 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 I don't, I'm not trying to, you know, advocate like going after psychiatrists, but, um, it did feel a little bit like a, a gross misdiagnosis in Chase's case. Bridget, you had a comment or a question? Yeah, thank you. You had talked about the the HIPAA issue and that and, and with regard to actual individuals or families trying to navigate this, which is incredibly difficult. But are there suggestions about what a person can do sometimes just like having the correct question to ask a mental health provider or the terminology or i don't know any guidance this is leslie she has given me this exact advice herself okay so hipaa actually allows for two-way conversation but most of the mental health professionals kind of hide behind it as a means to not have to interact and and communicate with the family Um, the family can always always talk to them and provide them with information that they need to know because most often when somebody's in a psychosis they're not their best own advocate and historian of their illness they can't tell the, the doctor what's going on, but doctors always can listen to us when we provide that information. And I recommend putting information on a one-page document with the diagnosis, the meds, any hospitalizations, be as brief and succinct as possible. And then also what has really helped is that even if somebody hasn't signed a release, physicians and nurses and social workers can talk with us in general ways hey, I can't tell you specifically about your son's medical treatment, but in other cases, when someone has schizoaffective disorder, what we find is da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It is absolutely possible to have conversations like this and to advocate for our loved ones. Um, You just have to be assertive in insisting upon getting that communication. So I wanted to address a couple comments in the chat. I just saw Um, someone asked, if Chase was able to advocate, act as an advocate for himself for mental health care legislation, and the answer is no. In once in the prison system, their modes of communication are so incredibly restricted. I there's just no way he could ever contact someone. It's in, it's extraordinarily expensive to send mail to send O-mail, it, it's a long process to get signed up for it. It, it can, so there's no way he could even attempt to advocate for himself. Um, and then someone also asked, uh, mentioned that Chase's case is um, very similar to Mark Becker, um, which was the, the very high profile case of the young man with undertreated schizophrenia um, in the grips of psychosis who murdered his the longtime coach, Ed Thomas. Um, interestingly, Chase has been in the same facility as Mark and told me when he first arrived at Oakdale or uh, the Iowa Medical and Classification Center, Mark was a great mentor to him in helping him get 
settled into the mental health prison. Um, Mark, who is now, I think, um, considered mostly stable himself, um, was uh, very kind to Chase when he first arrived there, interested in him. Wow. We are coming up on the hour, but Josiah, you had another comment, question as we wrap up? Yeah, there's just no, no substitute for a family being aggressively advocating for its loved one. You know, if there's a family, they have to put both feet in the door and insist that the nurses get the messages to the doctors somehow. You know, one page is succinct. Is so much better than nothing. So, so many, so many of the providers say, "Well, we didn't, we didn't know, we didn't know." It's it's not true if the family forces itself in, you know, and it's, somehow we've got to educate families. Yeah, yeah. I've had a thank couple. you, thank you, Callie, thank you. Thank you. Yes, Callie, thank you for taking this topic on. Please, everyone on the call. Tell everyone you know that Callie Van Bali is going to be writing about this issue and spread the word. And uh, who knows, maybe I, I'm a firm believer in, 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 the, in the disinfectant of sunlight. And uh, we just can't ignore that these things are happening right next door. Thank yeah. you, Callie. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. And for Leslie, I'm so glad you jumped on. I literally was talking about you like minutes before you, you jumped on and um, your resource as always has been invaluable. So thank you. And we'll thank do you for sunlight. I appreciate it. And we'll do this again, hopefully soon. Okay. Thanks everybody. Thank everyone.